Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who is a triple threat in the entertainment industry as he is an accomplished writer, director, and producer. He got his start in film and television by interning on Ken Burns' 1995 Emmy Award-winning outstanding informational series, Baseball. In addition to his work with Burns, which included jobs on Cornerstone and the West, he worked for filmmaker David Grubin, producing Money and Power, the history of business for CNBC. He also directed the Emmy Award-winning Jack, the last Kennedy film in 1993, which was produced with his father, Peter Davis. In 1998, he wrote and directed 1990. A black comedy feature filming uh, a film starring Jennifer Garner, Dan Futterman, and Amanda Peet of, you know, lately of Brockmire fame, yes, one of, of our favorite shows. Uh, a, little which, bit of, a little bit of Brockmire, but they're fading out, you know, guest appearances now. Which aired on the Sundance Channel. The film was screened at over 20 film festivals worldwide. Besides his father, who we already mentioned, his grandfather was Herman J. Mankiewicz, who co-wrote what is considered by many critic filmmakers and fans to be the greatest film of all time, Citizen Kane, which is universally praised for its cinematography, music, editing, and narrative structure. Um, his latest film, Ted Williams, The Greatest Hitter Who Ever Lived, explores not only the Baseball Hall of Famer's remarkable on-field accomplishments, but also his complicated relationship with his family, teammates, press, fans, and himself. It was an awesome film that AJ and I got to see. It premieres Monday, July 23rd at 9 p.m. on PBS, and it marks the first baseball subject in the series' 32-year history, um, only the third athlete as well. It is a thrill to welcome Nick Davis to WLIA Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Nick. Wow, thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's absolutely our pleasure. And before we talk about this fantastic film, I want to talk a little bit about you. Uh, I want to go back to 1990. Well, actually, 1975, when Eaton Boone, who was a painter, actor, stand-up comedian, television writer, filmmaker, and novelist, <laughs> was killed in a motorcycle accident. Actually, he's a fictional character created by you and your childhood friend, Brooks Hansen, in your 1990 book, Boone. And the reason I bring it up is twofold. One is that he seems to check off a lot of the boxes as far as jobs that you've done in your life. What are some of the parallels between you and Boone's work resume? <laughs> wow. Boy, was that an unexpected question. <laughs> um, so, well, you know, Boone was a, uh, an idea that uh, my friend, as you mentioned, Brooks Hanson and I cooked up. And, um, you know, we just put everything we wanted to do into the life story of this man. Uh, Eden Boone, and uh, and then we sort of gave the life story to a bunch of college actors and said, okay, tell us his life story back to us, and we'll have an oral biography. In the end, we ended up writing the book ourselves, but that sort of got us going on it. And I think, you know, when you're really young, it's just like, well, who, what would be the greatest thing? Is a guy who did all these things. That'd be so great. Uh, and then you get out into the world, and you're like, well, I'm going to do some of those things, or I'm going to try. Um, so I, I guess that's where the parallels, uh, uh, I hope, stop. He, he died young <laughs> yeah. and tragically and had a miserable life. So, uh, so that, that, that's, uh, that's about it for me and Boone. The other reason I bring it up is because you mentioned you know, giving it to a whole bunch of different students and you know, having them talk back to you what he did. Uh, the book uses 23 narrative voices, uh, each one painting an accurate portrayal of the short, intense, creative life in Arthur Boone. Was the writing style of that book in any way either a tribute or was it influenced in some way by your grandfather, you know, Herman J. Mankiewicz, the way he wrote? 
Well, that's just, God, okay. So far, you're two for two. Um, <laughs> I, I would, I would say yes. I think that um, the whole idea of a bunch of people talking about another uh, character, a mythical, larger than life character, obviously, the obvious parallel there is Citizen Kane. Um, and I don't think uh, we were really thinking about that as we wrote it. Um, and certainly, is, you know, but but what's interesting is as I uh, think about. Uh, the stuff I've done since then, that is what I'm most interested in doing is letting a bunch of people, as we do in the Ted Williams film, talk about Ted and then shaping those stories into into a narrative. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what Herman did in Citizen Kane, and so I guess that was sort of the template. Very cool. You know, and, and many of Boone's fictional stand-up routines are transcribed in the book, and prior to your work in film and television, you performed comedy in many New York City nightclubs. Were any of those acts taken directly from your stand-up? No. Um, so Boone, uh, Boone was a, a novel that was published in 1990, and, and I'm hoping that this interview puts it back in print. <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, you can go to Amazon and, and get it from, from used bookstores. Um, the, 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 what he did, what Boone did, was a kind of imitation. Where So he would get up, and rather than just doing Judy, Judy, Judy of Cary Grant, he would really try to go deep into who Cary Grant was and do these kind of improvisational, psychological, delve, delving-type riffs into whoever the audience wanted. So I, I didn't do that kind of thing as an improv comedian in the late 80s and early 90s, but, um, but I did always aspire to that level of, of intensity. Boone was very intense. Uh, and very funny, but like I said, very unhappy man. And you know, it took him a long time to sort out his personal life. And then once he did, he was in a tragic car accident. Uh, so it didn't it didn't end well for Boone. So while you're on that comedy circuit, and AJ and I are old enough that we frequented a lot of those clubs, and we've seen right. many guys before they became who they were. Uh, were any of the the future headliners that we know on some of the bills that you performed on? Uh, well, Lewis Black, actually, now that you mention it, uh, Lewis Black had, a, I guess, what's it called, where you're, you're the comedian in residence at a, a certain theater. And I think it was a, re a theater over on 42nd Street and 9th. And I, I hope maybe some of your listeners may know. I can't remember the name, Westgate or Westbeth or something. And he was there all the time. And I had an improv group called You and What Army, and we ended up performing a lot there. Uh, sort of opposite him, or he would go first, and then we would go, or we would go, and then he would go. Um, so he was one that we sort of intersected with. Judy Gold, I remember we once, we tried to do, we were an improv group strictly. We didn't, I didn't do stand-up, uh, although I did some one-man improvs. But um, the stand-up, we did try a couple of times to do it at Catch a Rising Star, because they had an evening of improv where we did it, and we did very well, and the guys at Catch a Rising Star said, oh, come back on a normal night. Improv at a at a stand up in in the middle of stand up doesn't tend to work, and we certainly didn't. Uh, but Judy Gold was there the night uh, on a couple of nights that we were there, and uh, actually Chris Rock. I saw Chris Rock at the bar. I remember. Um, but um, and then uh, for my uh, movie that you mentioned, uh, which Amanda Pete of Brockmire fame uh, was in, uh, there's one character um, who was sort of outside the action. Um, and I wanted a stand-up comedian, and I got a stand-up comedian. Actually, come to think of it, I got Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright played the role, and he was fantastic. Um, so I, I saw a number of stand-up comics for that role, um, and I guess that was cast in about 96. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah, with Stephen Wright. So, so, so nobody from Broadway, Danny Rose. No, but Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright is one of my favorites. I mean, the, the brilliant stuff. Like, you got a yeah. humidifier and a dehumidifier and put them in the corners of the room and had them fight it out. <laughs> yeah. so some, some great stuff. Um, you know, yeah. the interesting... It's a small world, yeah. but I wouldn't want to paint it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. He's, he's got a map of the world that uh, scale miles one inch is one inch. It says you are here. You know. uh, if you just joined us, we're talking to filmmaker Nick Davis, whose American Masters okay. film on Ted Williams prepares on, uh, premieres on TBS next Monday night. Uh, how did the, the writing process of a novel as well as your improv work set the foundation for your film work? Well, one of the things that I found fascinating and as a young, you know, know-it-all in my 20s, uh, dispiriting, was when I first started my film career, I could not believe how much preparation went into everything. I had the idea that, you know, improv was kind of the quintessential art. And so, you know, uh, the writing Boone was all generated from improv. I mean, we, we laid the groundwork with his life story, and then we had people, um, you know, like I said before, come in and sort of play, okay, you're his brother, you're his lover, you're his, you know, book publisher or whatever, and then we interviewed them in character. And even though we ended up having to rewrite everything they gave us, um, it, it all sort of stemmed from improv. And so when I got to film... Um, the first job I had, as you mentioned, was as an intern on Ken Burns' baseball, and I was blown away. I sort of thought, like, yeah, you go talk to Bob Feller and see what he has to say. But there was, there was so much preparation that went into everything and so much uh, research and groundwork and, and just legwork and logistics and everything um, that I was, I was sort of confronting the reality of the real world for the first time in that job. Um, and and it was fascinating. I mean, I I, I loved it. I, I refer to that those weeks so often in uh, in years since, and and certainly getting to make a baseball film myself uh, now with Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived, quote unquote, which airs on uh, Monday, July twenty third, nine p.m. PBS. Yeah. But getting to make that, uh, you know, has has brought me back to that Ken Burns um, experience. But I think that that in some ways improv and and um, and and the work I did in improv was it was great and fun, but it it sort of it it's been something I've had to overcome. I think I I'm, and maybe I'm just taking for granted what it taught me just about staying open to creative instincts and following your nose in the creative process and being able to zig and zag in the edit room. Um, but I I definitely felt in my twenties and and early career like. Oh yeah, yeah! So much preparation. Yeah. Can't we just shoot? You know, why do we have to? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I think that uh, that that was some of the stuff that I was, I was having to overcome. Uh, that improv, in some ways, sets you down the wrong path. Um, I also I came up in improv before UCB came to New York, so it was it was kind of before the improv revolution, um, and and there wasn't there wasn't much of a path. Um, in those days for, well, yeah, you do improv and then you get seen and then you, you know, you get showcases and there's all this, you know, sort of, ex there was an, there wasn't the accepted structure uh, that has, that has sprung up happily uh, after UCB came to New York in the, in the mid nineties. So as you get to start doing the Ted Williams documentary and you talk about preparation, what did you do? How did, how did it come about? What was the genesis of this? And then you sat down. I said, like, one of your 
executive producers listed as you know David Ortiz, Big Poppy, and Big Poppy Productions. How do you come together? How do all the forces come together? How do you pick out, you know, find the writers who you have in the film, and how do you find the players you decide to have as some of the key people interviewed in the film? Well, the film came about because a man named Al Tapper, who was a Worcester-born uh, businessman, uh, grew up in Worcester in the 40s and 50s, and I gather he came from a somewhat broken home. And all he had in his life that kept him going was Ted Williams. And he made a big success of himself, and later in life, he's now in his 60s or 70s, he turned towards uh, playwriting and also documentary films. And he went to the head of American Masters, a man named Michael Cantor, and he said, I want to do Ted Williams. Why don't you do Ted Williams? I'll put up a little bit of the money. Let's do Ted Williams. And Michael said, that's a good idea. Let me call Nick Davis. So he called me on a Friday, and it was the Friday of Game 3 of the 2015 World Series. And he said, do you want to meet Al Tapper on Monday? And he's got to want to do Ted Williams. Now, I grew up a huge baseball fan, so I thought, well, this would be fantastic. American Masters is a tremendous brand. Uh, this is their first baseball player, as you said, and only their third uh, you know, only their third, third athlete of all. I, I would love to do that, Michael. Hung up. Two hours later, he calls me back. He says, you're not going to believe this. I just got through my wife two tickets to Game 5. You want to go? I said, yes, Michael, you're my hero. <laughs> so we went to Game 5, two and a half hours, the greatest baseball game of my life. <laughs> turns into a total nightmare uh, when Harvey comes storming out of the mound, much to our disbelief in the top of the ninth inning. Anyway, it, it, nightmare. The next day, hoarse and unhappy, we meet Al Tapper. He explains what he wants to do. Al and I hit it off and we're off to the races. Um, he put up an, a sort of development money. And the first thing I do uh, is I get Ben Bradley's book, The Kid, uh, and I devour that and read that very, very carefully. So I, growing up a, a baseball fan, like I'm sure a lot of your listeners, I knew sort of the kind of the, you know, the, the highlights of Ted's career. I knew he was a nasty guy. I knew he didn't get along with the Boston press. But I didn't know like where any of that came from, and I didn't really know where he came from. I guess if you asked me, I might have been able to pick San Diego out of a multiple choice. But I, I didn't know that his mother had been Mexican-born and that Ted had hid this fact uh, for much of his life. And I, I just didn't know like what actually drove him to be the sometimes nasty but sometimes unbelievably big-hearted, complicated man that he was. So as I read the Bradley book, which really is a beautiful portrait, it's a great book, um, and then got the other biographies, I began to see what a much more complicated man he, Ted Williams really was than, than the cardboard cutout, you know, angry jerk, Boston Red Sox, that I'd always sort of thought he was. So in terms of the interviews, um, you know, the, the, the two that I knew I had to have were Ben Bradley and Claudia Williams, uh, Ted's daughter. So I, I called her, and she, because of the, shall we say, frozen head incident, um, had really <laughs> felt burned. She was so burned by all of that and, and just felt like her family had been totally raked over the coals. Uh, for those of you who may not remember, when Ted died, there was this whole controversy because rather than his body going to the morgue, it was whisked off to Arizona and stuck on ice, and he was decapitated and put in, cryogen put in a cryogenic facility with the idea of his being resurrected. And it was like, wait, what? What is going on? And, 
you know, those, all of his, uh, many of his friends were against this, and the Boston press was like, this is terrible, he didn't want this, and they showed a will that said he didn't want it, and then there was a piece of paper that said he did want it. So it was a huge controversy, and everyone attacked Claudia and her brother John Henry for it. So I called Claudia, and at first she was very, very uh, reluctant to participate in a, a documentary. And it was only when I said, Claudia, I'm interested in the man, who he was, what made him tick. I, I, you know, I don't care what happened after he died. That's not our story. Um, obviously, we'll go into it because it happened, but that's, we really want to get at what made your father who he was. And once she saw that and understood that, uh, she said she'd be happy to talk. So we completed those first two interviews in early 2016. Um, we did a couple other interviews later in 2016. I think we did uh, Jack Fisher, the guy who gave up the home run. We wanted to get the sort of the older crowd as quickly as possible while we were raising the money. And then the following spring, we brought in Big Poppy. Uh, the film is made in uh, in partnership with Major League Baseball, and Major League Baseball came to us and said, "Look, Big Poppy's just retired. He would like to be part of this. He's got a production company." Do you think you would like to do this in partnership with him? Uh, it could help you raise the money. It could help you publicize it. And we said, that sounds very good. Uh, so we, we brought him on, and, uh, and that was in about, I guess, I don't know, early, early 2017. Very soon thereafter, we had all the money we needed and, and were able to complete production and, and start editing. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, kind of how it worked. It's interesting for me because, you know, when you mentioned Ted Williams and, and AJ and I and every baseball fan know a lot about Ted Williams, read a lot, there's been so many and, and different actually, books. And actually, the first year I started following baseball was 1960, his last year, so I actually saw on TV, never in person, right. saw him play, you know, on games live. Oh, wow. We've all seen, you know, many films and, and yeah. the stories that you, you put out there. And, you know, I, when we first got the screener, I'm wondering, like, all right, what what are we going to learn from this? And you uh, learn so much from the, this film because yeah. it's not, you know, it's not a biopic. It really goes deep into the many aspects of him. And, you know, also you have all these people that admire him that came and talked. And that's one of the favorite things that AJ and I love to do whenever we meet an athlete who's played with either a Wayne Gretzky or Mark Messier or Ted Williams. Like for me, Lenny Randall, yeah. I sat one night, two hours, Lenny told me tons of, of Ted Williams yeah. stories. And you get a lot of that in, in this film. What, oh, Lenny Randall? What's that? I'm sorry, you've got stories from Lenny Randall because I guess he was managed by him in yes. Texas? Yes, and not only that, he was, he, you know, Lenny Randall actually went fishing with Ted because for some reason Ted saw Lenny as a pure hitter, and he took yeah. a liking to him immediately. And he wanted to teach him, and the way he taught Lenny Randall about baseball was he took him out fishing and told him, and Lenny showed me this with a bat, was saying that he asked me, how do you hold a fishing rod? He says, your, your hands are always loose. So he says, that's what you're supposed to do with a bat. He says, if you're squeezing the bat, you're never going to hit. You need to relax. He took mm. him fishing to teach him patience. And he mm. said, you know, all the, and Lenny absolutely loves it. He told the story about Danny McLean yeah. and, and, you know, uh, a, a bet that Ted had with him. Well, but what was interesting for me in the film that I had not known was how obsessive Ted Williams was. And the film has a clip of Ted saying all he wanted to do was play. And one day at the playground when he was 14, he heard one of the older kids say, boy, that kid has quick wrist. And Ted made up his mind right then. If he thinks I have quick wrist now, wait till the next time he sees me. 
Then it's yeah. followed by one of my favorite quotes in the film by Roger Angel, and it's something that Ted told Roger in confidence in spring training in the 70s right. as right. Ted was seeing all the hitters batting around 240. And Ted had a theory, and I'd like you to you know, you know, tell us about that theory, but remember we are on terrestrial radio, so you right. have to clean it up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so, yeah, Roger Angel it tells this story where Ted Williams comes up to him and he says, you can't print this, you know, because he knew it was good. So good. He says, I see all these batters for the Red Sox hitting around 230, 240. they got so much talent. And what I realize is they're just thinking about chasing women all the time. They're thinking about having sex. And as Roger says, that's not the phrase he used. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then he says, Roger. When I was their age, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I, well, I, I don't. I don't know what I can say on terrestrial radio. Which is, <laughs> but basically, Roger, I didn't become. Shall we say? I didn't uh, know a woman in the biblical way yeah. until the All Star break of my second year. I was thinking about hitting all the time. Yeah. So it, what's interesting there is like he he really was. So all he all he cared about was hitting. I mean, women had to take a back seat to 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 hitting. His wives, he had three wives, his, his children, they all knew that, like, his obsessions, and first he was hitting, but then later, after his playing career, it was, it was fishing, as you mm-hmm. suggest. It was like he was obsessed with being the best at whatever he did, and, and hitting was just an incredible act for him because although you do have to be loose, it is also very obviously hitting. It's a way to get out your aggression and your rage. And he did always say he hit better if he was mad. Um, so, you know, th- that was all a part of, of, uh, of the Ted Williams psyche. You know, one of the things that struck me, one of the interviews, Wade Boggs is talking at one point about how when he was a kid and he was having struggling in high school, and his father gave him Ted Williams' book on hitting. And the, he read the book over a weekend, and then his father asked him, what did you learn about this? He said, I learned two things. One was patience, and what the other thing was. And, and it was amazing to me, both Wade Boggs, who everybody thinks is a great and, hitter, and Joey Votto. And Joey Votto was the next that, one. Not only that, yeah. and I don't know, you know how yeah, many patience different... patience and discipline. Discipline, right. discipline. Right. And discipline. But yeah. the other yeah. interesting thing is, I don't know how many takes you did of it, but just the way Joey Votto was holding the book yeah. was yeah. like it was a, a sacred, you know, you know yeah. the... the the scroll, you know, yeah. just the way he was holding it, was, you, you could see <laughs> yeah. the reverence he held that book in, which was a very interesting shot. You know, obviously a big part of the book is 1941, Ted and Joe. That season would forever link the two superstars and create a rivalry that would last their entire career. And you show how the men were so different. What are some of the differences that you point out in the film? Well, uh, one of the things, I mean, the Joe and Ted dynamic is so interesting because, you know, we, know, we now know enough about both these guys where a, a, a baseball fan with a certain amount of knowledge would say, they're both jerks. I mean, you know, <laughs> they, they just were. But the interesting thing is Ted knew he was a jerk and, and didn't, didn't try to hide it. Joe, on the other hand, was so concerned with his image, as the great sports writer Tom Boswell said, Joe was regal. Ted was real. So what you see is what you get with Ted Williams. You know, you hear that famous story. Uh, it's not in the, in the film, but, you know, Joe DiMaggio always said, well, I have to go out there and play because there may be some kid out there who never saw Joe DiMaggio play. If Ted was hurt, I'm hurt. Am I going to play? You know, like he's, he doesn't consider who Ted Williams is. He just is Ted Williams. 
and um, Joe was meticulously aware of his own image. He was, it was a, he was groomed. And his, his sister-in-law, who we have in the film, uh, wonderful Emily DiMaggio, who is Dom's widow, said Joe ironed his underwear. You know, <laughs> Ted Williams was, was, you know, he wore his emotions on his sleeve, and Joe was very withheld. You never knew what Joe DiMaggio thought or felt. Fascinating subject. He'd be ter- uh, like an amazing, interesting guy, but just 180 degrees different from from Ted. And of course, after their playing days, uh, you know, there was this great rivalry. They both sort of grudgingly gave each other, you know, props for how good they had been. Although it was less grudging for Ted. Ted was was much more gracious towards Joe and would say he was the greatest player I ever saw. But he knew that he, Ted, had been a better hitter. Whereas Joe, to his friends, would say, "How many rings do you have? How many rings do you have?" You know, he he would say, "Yeah, he was a great hitter, uh, but he threw like a girl." You know, I mean, there was there was there was a nastiness to Joe towards Ted that was not uh, reciprocated. We're talking to, with filmmaker Nick Davis, who America's Masters film on Ted Williams premieres on PBS next Monday night. Obviously, Ted's time in the military is well documented in the film as well. Bob Costas' line to Ted about Ted being the guy John Wayne plays in movies to me was spot on. But my favorite story in you know about the military is the the crash landing that Ted had and the aftermath of, of that crash. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell our audience a little bit about that story? Yeah, well, so it, it's incredible. Ted, you know, in addition to being, as we have said, like possibly the greatest hitter who ever lived and an amazing fisherman who's in two fishermen's halls of fame, he's also an amazing pilot and, and no less a figure than John Glenn, the future astronaut, said he was the best pilot he'd ever seen. So Ted was coming in one day and he, he hit, he'd been hit, and he should have ejected, but he didn't want to eject because he thought he might cap his knees and lose his baseball career. So he, you know, he, it's, it's ridiculous. His plane is on fire and he has to fly all over the place and finally comes into a crash landing, barely makes it out of the plane uh, before the plane bursts into, into flames. And the, guy, uh, the guy is watching from the sidelines, a guy named Woody Woodbury, and and he sees a, a colonel come up to Ted and hand him a piece of paper, and Ted's just, you know, covered with smoke. He's just climbed out of the wreckage of this plane. Ted signs the paper and gives it back to the guy, and Woody Woodbury comes up to Ted and says, Jesus, that was amazing. What, what, what happened there? What, what was that? And Ted says, can you believe the nerve of this guy? I go up there and I get my ass shot off, and this guy wants me to sign an autograph. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another interesting part, you, you sparked when we had a Mexican-American heritage in San Diego. And you talk of the dichotomy, I think his, his daughter says, his politics were to the right of Attila the Hunt. But yeah. you talked about, about r- race relations. Right. He had a very liberal, you would say, feeling about that, maybe be explaining for his Mexican heritage. Why don't you talk about his Hall of Fame speech and some of the controversy over that? Well, so, yeah, it's incredible. Like, uh, I mean, he, uh, you know, when I was just out of college, I remember he endorsed George H.W. Bush right before the New Hampshire primary in 1988, and it made a huge difference. And and Bush always said, if it wasn't for Ted, I never would have been president. Um, and he, you know, he was a Republican. And 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 it's Dick Flavin in the film, the Red Sox poet laureate and and the PA announcer now, and the great writer and journalist up there, who says, you know, when you think about politics and Ted Williams, he was to the right of Attila the Hun, except on civil rights because. His mother was Mexican, and he saw 
what had been done to the Mexicans when he was a kid in San Diego. He also said, if I looked like my brother, I never would have played in the major leagues. His brother was a much more Mexican-looking guy and faced a lot of prejudice and had a terrible life, by the way. Uh, Ted found baseball, found something he was good at, and, and climbed his way out of poverty as a result. But he always did have enormous sympathy for those who were not given the chance. And so in 1966, when he's inducted into the Hall of Fame, obviously on the first ballot, although a lot of people, of course, a lot of sports writers left him off their ballots. Uh, he wasn't unanimous. Incredible. Um, he, he decided, all right, I'm going to speak up on behalf of uh, the, the Negro League players. And the Hall of Fame saw his speech beforehand, and they said, hey, Ted, we'd really rather you wouldn't say this. And, and, you know, you don't tell Ted Williams what he can and cannot do. So he goes out there in 1966 and gives a speech that says the Negro League players should be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. They, just because they weren't given a chance doesn't mean they weren't as good, if not better, than the players in the Major League. And sure enough, within a few years, uh, Major League Baseball has come around to that idea, and, and Satchel Paige and, and Josh Gibson and some of the Negro League player greats got in. Um, and most people think that, you know, that really was because Ted Williams said it. And nobody was asking him to say it. It's not like there was, like, a, a great controversy. Nobody had ever even considered this. Um, but Ted Williams felt like it's the right thing to do, and so he did it. And... Uh, and, and it's just another of the many contradictions of this guy, because you don't ordinarily associate Ted Williams walking arm in arm with Martin Luther King. Uh, but, you know, metaphorically speaking, that's what he was doing with this speech. The film covers so much material. And, and one thing that struck me, which I did not know about it, and, and because the way he went about it, he didn't want people to know about it. And that's the charity work that he did with the Jimmy Fund. And more so with the down and out, you know, former baseball players, which were all behind the scenes. And one story that is told really hits home the way he did it. Could you tell our, our audience how he went about when he was cold calling former players for the <laughs> yeah. Jimmy Fund? What would happen if a player would kind of tell him, well, I can't contribute because I, I'm kind of down and out on my luck? Yeah, so Ben Bradley tells this story. It's great. It, it's like he had such a big heart. So he would call, I mean, everyone knew Ted Williams associated with the Jimmy Fund, and which is the great cancer charity up in Boston. And, and first of all, he really did things for them. I mean, and he would go to the hospital and visit the kids and tell the press, you can't write about this. If you write about this, I'm not going to do it anymore. But he, he couldn't stand to see these kids suffering uh, for, for no reason, no good reason at all. But so he would call up former players who were down on their luck, and he'd say, you know, Ted Williams, can you contribute to the Jimmy Fund? And the guy would say, Ted, I'm sorry, man, I'm tapped out. I got nothing. And Ted Williams would say, God damn it, this is Ted Williams. You know, give me, send me a check for $10. So the guy would send him a check, and Ted would take the account number of the guy uh, from the check and then put $1,000 in the guy's account. Wow. Yeah. Just like, you know, and he just, that's, that's, uh, that, who does that? Right. Unbelievable. The film is excellent, Nick. Thanks so much for your time tonight. More importantly, thanks for a, a tremendous film. I really enjoyed it from start to finish, and it covered so much ground, and, and I was like hooked from the moment it started to the end. We really Great. look forward to it. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Our pleasure. Nick Davis, his latest film, Ted Williams, The Greatest Hitter Who Ever Lived, premieres Monday, July 23rd, 9 p.m. on PBS.